0: Amen. So, it's quite striking, isn't it, that um, this section begins with a command. And the command that the section begins with is to rejoice in the Lord. Now, this command is actually repeated throughout um, the book of Philippians. Particularly, if you look at um, chapter 4 and verse 4, the commandment to rejoice in the Lord there is repeated even more forcefully. And it says, Rejoice in the Lord always, at all times. No exceptions given. Now that's quite a difficult concept for us to grasp, really, if you just think about it. The idea of rejoicing as a commandment. <laughs> I, guess, I guess in modern times... We often think in our society as our feelings controlling and directing what we do, rather than us as having mastery over our feelings. However, we know that if we are to act as rational and reasonable beings, that normally our feelings need to be governed by our reasoning. Um, For example... Nobody would excuse a driver who is driving along and knocks over a child because he's enjoying his drive and he's listening to his music and he feels like he's having a great day. People would blame that driver. They would say that his feelings of wanting to drive along and enjoy that should be governed by his reasoning. So sometimes we can start to feel that we're bound to feel a certain way or act in a certain way because our feelings have dominance over us. So we can start to feel that we are a slave to our emotions. Sometimes we also might feel that our circumstances make us feel less than joyful, that we're a slave to our circumstances, a slave to our emotions or a slave to our circumstances. And sometimes maybe we just feel that we're one of those people that doesn't have a particularly bright or sunny temperament. People's temperaments vary, don't they? Some people always seem to be beaming and full of joy, whereas other people can be a bit glass half empty. And we can't necessarily help that. So some of us struggle to be joyful more than others. But the fact is, is that joy is not the only thing that the Bible commands that can clash with our temperament or our emotions, sometimes in the morning, do you feel that you don't want to get up f- for work? Sometimes I feel like that. I feel like I'm just gonna, you know, put the put the alarm clock on. I'm not gonna go to work, you know, and and just lie on a bit longer. But you know, the Bible says, um, you know, when we were with you, we gave this command: if anyone is not willing to um, work, um, neither should he eat. And if you think about it, throughout the Bible. There are commands to love people. We're told that we should love people. But we might say, well, I I have a naturally cold and unloving temperament. I'm not going to love people. But God says that despite of our feelings, um, we must act on the basis of truth. And to a certain extent, we must also believe that whatever God commands us, he will give us the power to do. So if he commands us here, rejoice in the Lord... Um, And if he repeats that in chapter 4 and verse 4, rejoice in the Lord um, always, then we must assume that he gives us the empowerment to enable us to carry out that command. Now, I don't want to say that glibly. None of that is to say that rejoicing will be easy. And for some of us, um, that rejoicing can be an uphill struggle. Um, But God is compassionate towards that. But the big question is, and the big question I want to look at this morning is, is how do we do that? How can we rejoice in the midst of circumstances which are, are falling in on us? And when we have a temperament, maybe, which isn't the most joyful, how can we rejoice in the midst of that? So what I want to talk to you about is just to give you a little bit of background about this um, passage, about what's going on here. Um, first of all, um, we know what was happening here was that... Um, There were a group of legalistic uh, teachers um, in Philippi. There were a group of legalistic teachers who were telling people that in order to be right with God, they needed to find their source of joy in their status as Jews and in their status as fulfilling all of the laws of God. Um, We know that um, they encouraged... um, they, They didn't explicitly deny Christ but they encouraged people to rely on their members of the Jewish community as, as the foundation of their joy. Their joy was based very much on their ethnic and their, their standing by birth. But in typical fashion, we see what Paul does here, is he doesn't mince his words, does he? He doesn't mince his words. I like that about Paul. He can be quite blunt, can't he? And direct sometimes. So he describes, first of all, doesn't he? He describes in verse two, he describes these teachers as dogs. And dogs was something you didn't want to be described as if you were a Jew at the time. Because a dog was an unclean animal. And it really suggests that these teachers were unclean in their thoughts and they were unclean in their um, actions as well. And then it, he calls them evil workers. So he, he describes them as although they thought they were doing all these good works, and that actually the intent and the outcome of the works that they were doing was evil. So they were dogs, they were evil workers. And then he goes on to describe them as the mutilation. And that's really a mocking term. And he's saying that not only did they physically mutilate or tear apart the flesh because of circumcision, but they also tore apart the body of Christ, with their destructive ideas. But Paul goes on in the next few verses, and he describes some of the things that Christians can rejoice in, that true Christians can rejoice in. And first of all, he talks in verse 3, he says that true Christians are the circumcision. They are the circumcision. So true Christians enjoy a spiritual circumcision, a cutting away of the dominance of the sinful nature over their lives. So on the verse above me it says, For he who is a Jew is not one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from God and not from men. So the first fact that these true Christians could rejoice in is a spiritual circumcision. But then he goes on to say that they worship God in the spirit. So the Judaizers, they relied excessively on worship practices that were about external forms. Um, And do you remember Jesus? Do you remember that Jesus encountered a woman? A woman came to Jesus And uh, she said to Jesus, look, Jesus, where should we worship? Because the Samaritans say that we should worship over here, and the Jews say that we should worship here. And what does Jesus say to her? He says, the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him Must worship in spirit and in truth. So, part of the ground of their rejoicing was that they could access God at any time. That they didn't need to rely on going through elaborate rituals or forms, but they could come into the very presence of God at any time. And that's a huge thing to rejoice in. You know, whatever you're going through in your life, and however, you know, you feel that things are overwhelming. You can immediately um, bring yourself into the very throne room of God. You can come into his presence and you can enjoy his love and his peace at any time. And that is something very precious we have as Christians, something to rejoice in, that we, we worship God in the Spirit. It says in the book of Hebrews that, therefore, having boldness, brethren, to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So we rejoice in the fact that we have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. So we rejoice in the fact that we've got a spiritual circumcision, that we worship God um, in the spirit. And finally, he says here, by way of introduction, that they have no confidence in the flesh. Everything that they rejoiced in, these teachers, was a fleshly confidence, a fleshly confidence by their spiritual performance. They had this feverish activity, these feverish good works, um, because they thought that by that they could obtain righteousness and they could obtain holiness. Um, But Paul says um, in Colossians, he says that all those things are futile. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility and neglect of the body, but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So really what Paul is doing here is he is encouraging the Philippians to nurture and to expand the joy that they have by rejoicing in these facts, by rejoicing um, in the fact that they have a spiritual circumcision, that they worship, they have a spiritual worship, and also that they have a spiritual confidence in Jesus Christ. So that's all by way of introduction but what I really want to do, um, just briefly with you now, is bring out three lessons about joy. Three lessons about joy. So first of all, we said earlier on that joy really springs from what we believe. And the biblical, um, the biblical order of, of how our emotions work is that it springs from our thoughts or our beliefs, which leads to our behaviours, which leads to our emotions, And it says in the book of Proverbs that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's very interesting to me, um, being being a doctor and being a GP, um, that the dominant form of um, psychotherapy that has become popular in the NHS and which has trials to prove that it works is a a therapy called cognitive behavioural therapy, which you may have heard. And it's really based on these same assumptions, that what we believe about things fundamentally determines our behaviours, which then determines our feelings. So emotion flows from right belief. And isn't it fascinating that the Bible, that the Word of God, has timeless wisdom within it, that even before man comes up with his theories, that the Word of God, the same principles, are in this book. Isn't that amazing? I think it's amazing. The wisdom, the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the Scriptures. Um, So that is amazing. So that's how we find joy. And Paul begins this passage by talking about the things that true Christians can rejoice in. But I want to go on now just to talk to you briefly about these three lessons about joy. So you can write them down. Uh, Get your pens and your papers, write them down. There's three three lessons here, we're going to get into them now. Three lessons about joy. Lesson number one. Real Real joy does not rest on the privileges of our background. Real joy does not rest on the privileges of our background. So Paul had a Jewish pedigree here, that many of the Judaizers would be green with envy over. He he, uh, says here, the first thing he says is, he was circumcised on the eighth day. So he had received this important marker of Jewish identity as a baby when he was only eight. People converted to the Jewish religion, but he received the marker of God's people in his flesh when he was only an eight-day-old baby. So he could rejoice in that. He was of the stock of Israel. So he was a bona fide Jew. He was a bona fide Jew. His ethnic roots lay very firmly with the nation that God had chosen um, and used over the Old Testament. So he was a bona fide Jew. Not only was he a Jew, but of all of the tribes of Israel, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin. And um, here we're seeing that his lineage, really, is absolutely impeccable. The tribe of Benjamin was a particularly distinguished tribe, you remember. It was the tribe that had given Israel its first king, King Saul. And it was from King Saul that Paul likely got his name. So we see this, um, this tradition. We see that the tribe of Benjamin had been noted especially for its faithfulness to God. And we see that when Israel divided into two kingdoms at the time of Rehoboam, the tribe of Benjamin sided with Judah, the the, the people who remained faithful to God. So he was of the tribe of uh, Benjamin. And not only that, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. So his family was steeped in Jewish culture and traditions. We think it was likely that Paul probably spoke Hebrew at home, which was quite unusual for the um, Jews um, of the time. But So he really had this absolutely impeccable background in terms of his privileges, where he came from. And all of the Judaizers who were emphasizing Jewishness, they would be absolutely like, looking with, with Paul with absolute envy in their eyes. But you know, despite possessing this perfect background, despite possessing this impeccable um, Jewish pedigree, he later said that he found it all empty and worthless. And he went on and even used the word dung. He said it's just like excrement. It's poo, basically. It's, 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 it's dung. It's dung. Okay. But what's the lesson for us here? We're not Paul, are we? We're not Pharisees, hopefully. Um, But, but, you know, we might feel, there's quite a few people in this church who come from a church background, and we might feel that we have an impeccable spiritual pedigree. Sometimes I think I've got an impeccable spiritual pedigree. Perhaps our grandparents or our parents were known to be mighty men and women of God. Perhaps they prayed ceaselessly for us and with great fervour, Perhaps their wise words of spiritual insight are still ringing in our ears. Perhaps we had the privilege of growing up in a home where the Bible was honoured and the name of Jesus was, um, was uh, honoured and, and blessed. And perhaps we feel that we're a member of a spiritual elite because we're a member of this church. Do you feel like that? I hope you don't. <laughs> But whatever the case, whatever the case, what Paul is saying here is that none of these things can be the foundation of our rejoicing. None of these things, none of these privileges of our background, they're not the foundation of our rejoicing. Amen. But the second lesson is this, not only is it, is it not the privileges of our background, but real joy does not depend on our spiritual achievements It doesn't depend on our spiritual achievements. So if our heredity and our background uh, provide a flimsy basis for real joy, then maybe it is our spiritual achievements. And Paul outlines, he goes on to outline his rather impressive list of spiritual achievements. He says in verse 5, again, he says, concerning the law, a Pharisee. He'd been in the very strictest of the strict Jewish sects, and he'd been scrupulous in ensuring that he obeyed every law in minute detail. He had an education in Judaism which was second to none. He'd been educated at the feet of Gamaliel, who was one of the foremost teachers of that time. But not only was he devout in his practice, not only did he know his stuff as a Jew, but it says that... In verse uh, 6, that concerning zeal, he persecuted the church. So not only was he knowledgeable, but he was also totally sincere, 100% dedicated to the things that he had learnt. He was willing to put his money where his mouth was. Unfortunately for the Christians, that resulted in his brutal persecution of them. So concerning zeal, persecuting the church... But also in verse 6, it goes on to say concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Righteousness for the observant Pharisee was a matter of fulfilling certain external duties. As long as you ticked all the boxes on the rule book of all the external things you were meant to do, you could actually obtain that standard of righteousness. Um, which in a way was quite nice, I guess. It's quite, quite, if you avoided certain outward, visible sins, you could get to a point quite easily where you could say, I am now righteous. I am now right with God. And from that external point of view, Paul could say that he was blameless. Paul could say that he was righteous. He had fulfilled those external demands of the law. But the thing is, God himself stamped a guilty verdict over all of Paul's efforts. And he stamps a guilty verdict over all our efforts to please him by merely fulfilling external rules because what God's looking for is a holiness of the heart, a holiness of the heart, a deeper holiness. Do you remember that Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. So God was looking for a deeper holiness, a deeper righteousness. So what, what is the relevance of this? What is the relevance of, of this, you know, Well, the relevance of it is is that we too, we trust in our imagined spiritual accomplishments. We do the same thing. I do the same thing. You do the same thing. We live in an evangelical subculture which has certain external things that we're meant to avoid doing. It wouldn't be great if, you know, you saw me on the Prince of Wales Road on a Saturday night, rolling around drunk. You probably wouldn't think that was really acceptable within terms of evangelical subculture, and indeed it wouldn't be. Um, you know, we don't gamble, we don't engage in you know, blatant sexual immorality, hopefully. Um, but the thing is, what we start to do as evangelicals, as Christians, is we start to build our success On our avoidance of all of these external things, and we go down the list and we tick the box, and actually it makes us happy for a while. It makes us happy for a while. We think, "Oh, great! You know, I'm doing really well. I'm I'm a really good evangelical Christian." You know, if you had to do a film about you know an ideal evangelical Christian, maybe it would be me. You know, But (laughs) but the thing is, the thing is, the thing is, it gives us it gives us that apparent success gives us a fleeting sense of joy for a while. And what happens is, it all comes tumbling down. It comes tumbling down with a crushing realisation that actually we're failures on the inside where it really matters. We're failures on the inside, aren't we, where it really matters. Um, Jesus said again, didn't he? He said, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! "'You're like whitewashed tombs, "'which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside.'" Are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So <clears throat> perhaps we another thing we can pride ourselves on is our knowledge of the Bible um, and Christian doctrine. And sometimes that becomes our source of joy. I remember when I was growing up, we, we, had, a, we had a Bible club in a in a like a young people's Bible club thing in, 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 a, in a church I was going to. And, and I used to love it, because whenever they came round to the questions, they'd be like, oh, you know, and, and who was Zacchaeus, and who was, and I'd be picking up my hand, and I'd be going, pick me, pick me, pick me, and it would be like, um, it'd be a bit like Shrek, you know, I don't know if you seen that in Donkey and Shrek, and he kind of bounces up and down, and he's, you know, pick me, pick me, pick me. And I was just so pleased that I could answer all these Bible questions. I just used to like delight in it. I used to love it. And to be honest, I was, a, I was the same at medical school, I think, as well. <laughs> so I think people must hate me, really. But, <laughs> but, but do you know what? The thing is, seriously, those other poor kids on the estate didn't really have a chance, did they? But, but, but also, but, but seriously, the thing I realised, the thing I, realized, the thing I, I came to realise is that God is much more interested in seeing a heart which is soft to him and soft to other people than a mind and a brain which is stuffed full of all the right answers. God's much more interested in that. So perhaps the thing that we're trusting in is that, like Paul, we we throw all of our energy and all of our enthusiasm into church work or evangelism. We throw it all into these things. And too easily that becomes the place where we find our validation and our worth. And the trouble is when we feel that we're not achieving all we want to in terms of our work for church or evangelism, then we we start to slip down, we start to spiral into despondency again. Because it's all flimsy, it's all fleeting. So if real joy cannot be found on the basis of our background, our privileged background, and it can't be found... On the basis of our spiritual achievements, where can it be found? And this is point number three. You probably guessed where this is going. Real joy, real joy, is found in an authentic experience of Jesus Christ. An authentic experience of Jesus Christ. So <clears throat> Paul, as I said before, Paul uses very strong language actually to describe his, his privileged Hebrew background and all of these illustrious spiritual achievements. He, he calls them excrement or dung or poo. He, he, he says that they're, they're, they're hopeless as a foundation for his rejoicing. If you look at verse 8, it looks there like he's acting as an accountant. He's going through in his mind, he's doing all the sums and he's adding up his privileges and his achievements and he's finding at the end of it that he's been left in the red. He's been left in minus figures. I wonder if you ever feel like you've done the maths for your life and you've added everything up, all of your experiences and all of your achievements. And I wonder if sometimes you feel like you're in minus figures and you feel like you're in the red. That's how Paul felt um, when he looked through all of his achievements. But where is his joy to be found? It says here it's in the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus. More than a head knowledge, an experience reality... In the depths of his being. So in verse 9, if you look at verse 9, he talks there more about. There is a head knowledge aspect, I think, here. There's two aspects, really, to the knowledge of knowing Christ. There's kind of a head knowledge aspect. Um, So in verse 9, he says, Be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So there is this intellectual understanding, Paul is really saying. That his righteous standing before God is purely on the basis of Christ's work. That legal declaration which has been declared over Paul as a result of what Christ has done. And we read about that in Romans and it says, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all and on all who believe. So that provides that intellectual understanding that Paul talks about there provides a secure basis from which true joy can spring. It's a welcome relief from that constant striving, that uphill scramble to validate ourselves that Paul had got caught into. But you know what, in verse 10, he goes on to talk, I think, a bit more about a different kind of a knowledge. Um, and in verse 10, he talks much more about moving from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge, to something which is experienced. Because he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. How can I explain this? I'm not very good at analogies, okay. But, but basically, imagine that someone gives you some flexible tickets to go to the Caribbean on holiday. And they say to you, you can go to the Caribbean whenever you want. I've given you these tickets. So, and at your convenience. So you know when you've got those tickets that you've got the right to avail yourselves of those tickets at any time. That's, um, that's, what, you've, that's what you've got. You've got the right to do that. But it's not until you actually use those free tickets and you end up in the Caribbean and you end up on the beach, strolling along those idyllic sands, feeling the warmth of the sun on your face and submerging yourselves in those crystal cool waters that you've really experienced it. Knowing that we're righteous of God is like, we, we, knowing we have the righteousness of Christ is like knowing we've got the free ticket. But that's not the end. That's not what we're aiming for. We're aiming to know Jesus in an experienced way to soak up that tropical climate, to submerge ourselves into the oceans of his love, to feel the warmth of the joy of the Son of God in our face. That's what we're aiming for, an experienced knowledge. It's it's not just a series of propositional truths about God. It's going deeper and deeper into this intimate experience with him. You know, sometimes we're quite cautious, I think, of the language of experience But the thing is, Christianity is an experience. It is an experienced reality. The Bible is full of the language of experience. It says in Psalm, it says, You will show me the path of your life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So sometimes as Christians, and I've heard Christians say this, that we don't want to go down the route of experience. But the thing is, we do want to go down the route of experience. I want an authentic experience with Jesus Christ. We don't just know it in our minds. We want to experience the riches of his love, the riches that are hidden in Jesus Christ, the true fountain of joy and satisfaction. That's where joy is to be found. So, you know, most people get to the end of their lives, if they get to the end of their lives, and they don't really get to the end of their lives. Very few people get to the end of their lives and wish, or I wish I'd worked more, I wish I'd spent more hours in the surgery, I wish I'd done this, or that project, or this. What well, they get to the end of their lives is they wish I'd spent more time on my relationships. I wish I'd spent more time on my relationships. But you know what? The greatest relationship, and the most satisfying relationship we could ever dream of having, is a relationship with Jesus Christ. Amen. So, so that was really, that's really, you know, the only fountain of joy and delight for Paul was, was this relationship with Jesus. And it was as Paul relentlessly pressed deeper and deeper into this relationship that he understood a bit more about what it meant to rejoice in the Lord. And that's really my prayer for us today. I pray that we won't rest on our background, I pray that we won't rest in our spiritual accomplishments, but I pray that we would press more and more into an intimate and real experience with Jesus Christ.